Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And joining us this week, I've been here before, welcome back to a, a guest, Joel Rubin. Joel is not the American musician, but is is a commentator on I domestic. Yeah. Uh, more importantly, uh, are you still a vice mayor in Chevy Chase? As of this evening, I no longer am on the town council. My oh well, former town council member from Chevy Chase, uh, Maryland, uh, 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 and a former senior Obama State Department official. Uh, and was also in charge of the Jewish outreach for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. Welcome back to the show, Joel Rubin. Joel, thanks for joining us, man. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Thanks, Brian. Thank We're going to, before we get started, and the question we have to ask you is about nuclear war and Donald Trump. No, I'm kidding. Just, well, maybe. <laughs> before we get into it, we got to take a this quick commercial break to pay the bills. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And uh, with me is Joel Rubin, a former State Department official in the Obama administration. And Joel, you penned an article recently that caught my attention about Iran and nuclear war. Are we that close to seeing Iran develop a bomb? Well, Brian, we are closer than we ever have been. And uh, the intelligence uh, community assesses still that Iran's supreme leader has not made the decision to build a nuclear weapon. And that is consistent with the intelligence assessments for the last two decades. And so in that way, no, they do not have the bomb. But when it comes to the actual materials needed to build a bomb, because Donald Trump terminated the Iran nuclear deal negotiated by President Obama, there are no longer constraints on Iran's nuclear program. And the result of that is that now Iran has enough fissile material, enough uh, uh, essentially bomb-making material to have one bomb's worth if they sprint to it at weapons grade within less than two weeks. Now, this was not the case wow. when President Obama left office. It was 12 months and there was extreme verification and monitoring of that program. Now there's no monitoring and verification of that program as well. So we just don't know. So this is our best guess. And that's really scary. And it's got the Middle East on edge. It's got our allies in the Middle East clearly on edge, like Israel, uh, Gulf states. 
And of course, it's a national security threat to the United States to see another country, a country that supports terrorism and is a country that uh, is incredibly uh, uh, dangerous to the region and, and working with Russia uh, against Ukraine to also be on the precipice of a nuclear bomb. And the worst thing about it, I'll pause this, is it does not have to be this way. It never did have to be this way. But Donald Trump put us in this box and it's been incredibly difficult to reconstruct the deal that President Obama negotiated and that had Iran in that box. So tell us exactly what box we got out of when we destroyed the the agreement and what box we got into because of Donald Trump. Be specific. I mean, I mean, it's I, I love to blame Donald Trump for everything. Bad weather. You know, I'm in because I've seen what the son of a bitch did during the insurrection and I can't buy a word that he says. But for those who need the facts, and I'm one of them, spell it out. What happened? So the Iran nuclear program has always been a, a threat, a menace, and a concern for a number of years. And throughout the two th early 2000s, there were on and off negotiations about whether or not Iran would come to an agreement and limit its nuclear program's advances. That really was part of an ongoing process of essentially pressure by the United States, where we implemented, implemented sanctions and our allies through European, the European Union, primarily Europe, but France and Germany and Britain, they would negotiate. It never really got anywhere, though. And then in about 2011, 2012, there were back channel discussions to try to get Iran to commit to doing several things. Uh, first, it had a plutonium reactor and plutonium. There are two pathways to get in the bomb. There's plutonium and uranium. And the plutonium reactor is a very dangerous reactor. It's above ground. Uh, if it gets hit, for example, by a strike, it could shed uh, radiation. Very dangerous. And they had a very advanced plutonium reactor. And the second is to limit their fissile material through uranium. And uranium is enriched through centrifuges spinning at high velocity. And they were advancing their capabilities in that area. And this is 2011, 2012. So that's sort of what was on the table. And in addition to that, getting Iran to sign up to limits, uh, getting inspections from the international community through the International Atomic Energy Agency in there to try to verify that whatever limits negotiated, that those limits would be uh, met. And in exchange, the sanctions part that we talked about a little bit earlier in those years, that would be lifted. So the deal would essentially be, you freeze your nuclear program and it's verifiable and we relieve you of the sanctions pressure we put on you. But that's the whole point of sanctions. Right. You don't do them forever. You do them to try to create an outcome. Leverage. Leverage. No country could stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon except for one country. Except Iran. Iran, exactly. The idea of a military operation, we we understand how fan, fantasy-ish it is. Look at Iraq. The idea that you're going to somehow go into a country militarily three times the size of Iraq, which is what Iran is, and find these nuclear components when they... Uh, the Israelis could have done it. <laughs> yeah, sure. This one shot when it's dispersed in 500 different yes. facilities. Impossible, right? So that's what was going on. Now, fast forward, basically, President Obama, along with our allies, negotiated what ultimately became known as the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a horrible acronym. But the JCPOA, a.k.a. the Iran deal, was concluded in 
late 2015, summer of 2015. And it had this trade at the center of the deal, which is we're going to relieve sanctions and you're going to limit your nuclear program. And it's going to be verified by the international community. And what is sort of a, a, a an interesting, neat point, and I was in the Obama administration working on legislative affairs. I was our senior uh, uh, official uh, engaging the House of Representatives. So we had a Republican House. And uh, the thing yes, I remember. <laughs> and, and you know what? I'll tell you, man, there were like 100 Donald Trumps up there before Donald Trump even went. So like I knew Still he was Still are. I mean, now it's 200, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but um, basically, the argument was, by doing this, we're going to ensure that there's a nuclear breakout time of at least one year, meaning that if Iran and the Supreme Leader were to decide, and he still is not, that he wants a nuclear weapon, he would have to spend roughly a year's time to enrich the uranium to a level that's weapons grade. It would take a year to get that amount. And it would still take another couple of years to test and weaponize that material and place it onto a warhead, let alone have that warhead on a missile function properly, right? So you got right. a lot of time there. So the idea was that we don't trust Iran, but we're gonna verify the behavior and we're gonna build in such lead time that we can react if they do something bad. Right. Which, you know, and that's the deal. And that's good because then you've got the nuclear program locked away. And then along comes Donald Trump and 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 and, and, so and gets rid of everything that Obama did. And, and then he canceled 2000, this 2018, man. He pulls out. He says, you know what? I don't like that deal, even though it's working and the international community verifies it's working and Iran's far away from the bomb and it's not a nuclear threat anymore. I don't like it. So I'm going to stop the sanctions relief. I'm going to unilaterally reimpose sanctions. That's a breaking of the deal. And that yeah. is what? For about a year and a half or two, Iran stays put because they think, you know, maybe, maybe so, not. Joe, get what a this deal. does to me is begs the question. We say they're not trustworthy, but we're not either. Our no, government... No switched and is not we made a deal we reneged on the deal and the iranians are saying that now even to the biden administration like we get you you want in the deal frankly the terms are okay but we need an extra guarantee and this is where the hiccups came with the biden team we need a guarantee that you're not going to renege on the deal again right and i mean like, well, you can talk to the native deal. americans in our own country about our ability to keep our deals i That's mean seriously uh we promise but if donald trump's elected we can't really guarantee it right so we're screwed so the, the american word totally decimates nothing national diplomacy so it's a twofer a it's a threefer a iran gets to advance their nuclear program b um, uh, sanctions go forward and they uh, prove useless. So now they're a weaker tool for American power than they were before because they're not stopping Iran from advancing its nuclear program because it was the sanctions relief that stopped it, not the imposition of sanctions that stopped right. it. And then C, nobody trusts us. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, Iran has a history of not trusting us because we 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 screwed them. I mean, they had a democracy. We didn't like the fact that they want to nationalize their uh, oil company. 
So we put in the shawl <laughs> and look how well that went over. I guess he's coming back. Pardon? Guess who's coming back? Who? The, the Shah's son. Halavi. Yes, he is now, he was in Israel about a week and a half ago. And he met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and he's been making the rounds here in Washington with uh, Jewish community leaders. And I've worked in the Jewish community for a long time and I'm kind of furious about it. I've been talking to people. It's sort of like the modern day Chalabi and Chalabi, for those who may not remember him, he's the guy that sort of orchestrated the neocons to launch a war into Iraq so he could get into power. And he was promptly booted out by the Iraqi people who couldn't stand him because he was paradoxically an Iranian stooge. So and the whole thing's a mess. And now, so so we boot out the Iranian elected leader, Mossadegh in 53, installed the Shah. Um, the Shah oppresses his people. Uh, there are good relations with America through the Shah and, and other allies. And that's sort of like backing Middle East dictators against the people, sort of a, an ongoing thing. And And I think this is this trust deficit to this point of what we're talking about is so critical because uh, you don't have to trust, but you have to trust to verify that you make. Yeah. So this agreement was not well, like Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry. Trust, but verify. <laughs> no, well, I'm no Ronald Reagan fan, but th there you go. Look, you know, he and, you know, interestingly, Reagan had a, a skill at negotiating nuclear arms treaties with the Soviet Union. And that was where the verification protocol came in, like the roots of arms control, which are sort of the drivers of this nuclear deal with Iran, are from U.S.-Soviet negotiations over nuclear. And the problem with the Trump approach and the neocon approach is they don't give a crap about actual negotiations with your adversaries on nuclear issues. They are ideological. So the goal here wasn't to somehow stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. The goal was to reimpose hard sanctions for regime change in Iran. That's what they were doing. That was the point. The point was not whether or not the deal was working. They don't care. The, 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 the grave sin committed by Barack Obama in their eyes is that he cut a deal with the Iranian regime that gave them money, and now they're alive and surviving, and we have to get rid of that regime. That practical nature of the deal was too uh, dangerous for them. A regime, by the way, I will remind you that we're directly responsible for being there because of the actions that we took. Bingo. And, you know, it's a nasty regime. Yeah. And I got attacked because of my, my piece in New York Daily News, where I, I basically recounted a story of how in 2015, I went up as a, a speaker to an event in Hakeem Jeffries district in Brooklyn. And I went up, I had just left the administration uh, to later run for Congress, which Brian and I first met at. And, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Woo, that was a great debate. Um, <laughs> man, you were, you were a killer. You should have been on the stage tonight with Donald Trump. Let's talk a little bit about that when we come. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. But I went up and I did this town hall event where I was a, a guest panelist and Hakeem was moderating it. The congressman, now leader of Democrats in the House. 
And I got up there and I talked about the deal and how it'd be good. And my God, did they boo me? Really? <laughs> I thought I could soften them up. I'm like, my dad was born here. And these are all these Russian Jews. Let's just say uh, one of them got up and said that you remind me of the Jews in the 1930s who picketed in favor of Hitler. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> I'm a generation married Jew. What the hell? <laughs> um, but the, the thing about it that, that really came across, and in, in after I wrote this article, it's the same arguments coming at me where people would post, how can you talk to terrorists? And they put pictures of like people hanging in Tehran. Why would you appease them and talk to terrorists? And I just write back, because I don't want them to have a nuclear weapon. Right. Bingo. End of story. But let's let's wrap this up with the thing that I think is most important to point out. We got into this current dilemma because our former president simply got a wild hair up his ass and decided he didn't like the deal. Now, when you look at all that Donald Trump says and all that he's done, is there any doubt or I don't want to I don't want to lead you on. Do you believe that Donald Trump has the mental acumen to handle international problems? He does on behalf of our adversaries. <laughs> well, that's pretty succinct. <laughs> I mean, what am I supposed to say? Right on the debate stage, he's attacking the Europeans, and he he's like ignoring Ukraine. He's saying that Putin is is brilliant. He may have made a mistake, but he's oh, he's he's still very smart. She's very smart, and oh yeah, um, you know, uh, when asked about whether or not Putin's a war criminal, I don't know. They're bombing cities. Well, I don't know. You can't. That's a negotiating tactic. Yeah. Donald Trump is great for the global dictators and, and despots around the world. And the idea that he is somehow going to advance American security is laughable. We um, we blew our alliances with our allies. And he said one thing in this debate, and he'll continue to use it. And it's very important that people understand how to respond. He said, if I were president, Putin never would have invaded Ukraine. That's because Donald Trump is too busy with his tongue firmly attached to Putin's ass. Yes, I get that. <laughs> and there's a couple ways to answer this. Yeah. One is Putin was getting everything he wanted out of Ukraine when you were president. Remember, by the way, you tried to blackmail President Zelensky into getting fake dirt on Joe Biden to win the election in 2020, which is why you got impeached the first time. But then the second truth is that if Putin had invaded, and he likely would have, Donald Trump would have, oh, brother, come on over. Yeah. Keep going. That's what we get with Donald Trump. And, um, and that's a real scary dynamic. And the world wants an America that is consistent, sticks to our word, has their back. And that's what we have right now. And this, this, this idea of Russia, uh, of Iran and the nuclear deal collapsing for many, uh, 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 basically for many reasons for Donald Trump, but but I'll put it this way, see if I can be, be say it sharper. The reality is, is that he damaged our word with that deal. That was the single dumbest idea America has executed in the Middle East in the last 20 years, other than invading Iraq, right? 
Invading yeah. Iraq, the number one worst idea. But Donald Trump now has unleashed a potential nuclear weapon in Iran's hands. and put which, the whole... uh, which you could argue is far worse than invading Iraq. If they have a nuclear weapon, we will likely see many more countries obtain them. Yep. And it would be like Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, all having nukes and pointing them at each other. Horrible. Yep. And with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me is Joel Rubin talking about the wonderful decisions made by Donald Trump as president. I have to agree and concur with you on a couple of things. A, there is no doubt in my mind that other than the decision to invade Iraq, that uh, what we did with uh, Iran was probably the single word, uh, other than that, was the worst decision made in the Middle East. But I would even go further. I would think that it so ruined our reputation and kept people from... Uh, trusting us that it could lead to nuclear pro proliferation and uh i i you know the the lack of respect or even concern about the u.s going forward it's driving uh people to make other uh uh relationships outside of the sphere of the u.s because we cannot be trusted yes well that's it's a leading question <laughs> yes you're right brian <laughs> but yes you are right it's happening right now you know, China, um, in the years that Donald Trump was calling uh, countries in Africa shithole countries, China was moving in and, and essentially asserting itself. Uh, we are trying to make up for lost ground. The vice president was out there. Secretary of State's out there. The president will be going out there. But we're behind. So African countries look at us and are like, well, OK, you look down on us and you're not reliable. Europe, their European Union, NATO we're still trying to make up for lost ground. The lack of trust there, they didn't believe us or Joe Biden when he said that he would support Ukraine. Tons of work there. In the Middle East, countries right now are working with China to resolve. Yes. So look at this, Saudi Arabia and Iran, through Chinese mediation, are now in a detente. They're now calming the waters and they have been fighting proxy wars against each other throughout the region. Now that's disappearing. All of these deals now are happening. It's not because the U.S. isn't engaged. It's because these countries look at us like that Trump guy's over the corner. He blew up things before. Look at your Republicans in Congress. They don't stand for any principles on, on national security. Like they're basically untrustworthy. And the United States standing because of Donald Trump directly, it really took a body blow to how countries view our word. And it, it, it's incredibly difficult to get trust back, especially when you're dealing with autocratic countries, oftentimes that have leaders that stick around a lot longer than our leaders. 
Yeah, and and not only that, but one of the things about this country is we've honored the commitments, well, sometimes have honored the commitments that presidents have made in the past. Uh, the Native Americans in the U.S. will argue not so much, uh, <laughs> and they'd be right. But internationally, we've had a better um, track record than we have, you know, uh, domestically. Um, it, but so what Donald Trump did was destroy any chance that, you know, they could look at us and go, oh, there's the bright shining light on the hill. They they treat us honorably. We, we didn't. Let, let me actually add one, one layer to this. Also, I think it's really, you know, in, intriguing and important. There's a community of people, and I, 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 you know, I've worked with this community for a number of years that advocated for diplomacy with Iran to prevent them get, from getting nuclear weapons, but also to prevent another war in the region right. where this is engaged. And, and much of that was based upon the idea that the Iraq war was a disaster. We can go into reasons as to why, but this sort of community of experts, analysts, politicians, activists got it that like we need to do foreign policy differently. We need to engage the Middle East, for example, with diplomacy and with smart strategies to integrate uh, tools like sanctions and diplomacy to get outcomes that advance our security, that we can't just send 150,000 troops to a country and invade it because that's the right and simple way to do it. That is not where we want to go. So Iran, in many ways, became the focus of those efforts. So for years, number of seven, eight, nine years, activists put their energy into supporting Iran's diplomacy in order to not just get a deal on the nuclear issue, but also to prevent a war and to turn the page on how America deals with the Middle East, to have a different right. way of dealing with problems. So the tragedy as well, and this is where it got very political, Donald Trump was opposed to the nuclear deal when he was an early stage candidate for president. This was all political for him. This had nothing to do with the merits of the case. This was all about anti-Obama and anti-diplomacy and showing essentially that he was not going to do things the way Obama was doing him. And Obama was doing them in reaction to the neocon foreign policy of the Bush administration. And this idea that we can bomb our way to better outcomes. And, um, and, and Trump destroyed that. And it's really hard to bring that back. It's really hard. So now countries like, well, okay, you want to blow us up. You want to do deals with us. You don't want to blow us up anymore. You don't want to deals with us. I guess we got to look elsewhere. Let me switch gears just for a second and ask you, you watched Trump tonight in, in his town hall. Um, and I have not yet taken a shower, but oof, do yeah. I, know. <laughs> I, I think I could bathe for 40 days and 40 nights and could not <laughs> wa wash that stench away. I honestly felt like it was PTSD at the end of it. I just couldn't. I, I After four years of covering that bastard, to see him back on stage blathering about and no one stopping him from telling his lies and look you can't fact check him in real time i give caitlin collins you know credit for trying to fact check him in real time that's not how you donald Tr handle donald trump uh you said earlier about um when i ha had a candidate for him that's how you handle candidates all right your time's up shut up going on to the next one you get yes. people and get him to shut the fuck up which yes. he never did 
Um, yes, I would have loved to have hosted that. <laughs> I mean, you took him on when you were at the White House, so it's yeah. not like you didn't get your shots in. But yeah. you, that's how you do it. But when you look at when, and thank you, but you you look at that. What was the biggest single sin you think he committed tonight? I okay. There, there well, there's the political and the moral, and just the the, the sort of the 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 arguments he was making. I was astonished. The one moment I was totally astonished was when Caitlin Collins asked him about the police at the Capitol who were hurt on January 6th. And he called a black police officer a thug. And no, but he said, well, they killed Ashley Babbitt. Yeah. Yeah. That was his response. To me, that was the gutter dweller argument. That was the argument of, you know what? We were right. And we wanted to take over the Capitol. And they killed her. And there was nothing else to it. That was the lowest of the low moments. Now, there were other low ones like making fun of Chinatown for not knowing English or mocking uh, Jean Carroll and, and saying, what kind of woman does this? Like It was it was bizarro world. Like this, the things that he was saying were just so. Yeah, I'd be, I would not be surprised if he had another lawsuit filed by Jean Carroll. <laughs> and it's super more damages right yeah but I, I just i think this this whole broad concept that um he is is completely uh unrepentant there's literally nothing that i saw tonight that demonstrates any acknowledgement of anything down to even mar-a-lago where he's basically like well joe biden has 1850 boxes and it was like it was like it was incredible. Nothing changed. And it got worse because there's worse stuff that's happened in the last couple of years. Yeah. It down down the slippery slope we go. Do you think that Donald Trump is in any way redeemable? <laughs> but can we reject the, the purchase? You mean, can we <laughs> redeem it? Can we send it back? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not man he's gonna take us as far down the gutter as possible there's nothing there's nothing redemptive about this human being at all nothing it's 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 ridiculous i've been dealing with him since i was a kid in the 80s watching him from afar astonished and grossed out and it's like it's still there the thing is that that amazes me is how capable he is as a communicator with the quick wit and the lie and he just yeah. doesn't does it it is a it is a secret skill and it is magical like to watch if you're an ally well it's dark magic but (laughs) dark magic but it it is it is look at this guy he's been commanding the public attention for 40 plus years he knows how to do it um and it's going to be difficult in a debate forum from time to time but what he did do tonight for democrats and i i am a democrat is he reminded us of the stakes. And, yeah. you know, we come out and turn out, we win. And we win big. And uh, if I'm Mitch McConnell tonight, I'm shitting bricks. Excuse my language. <laughs> um, but no, man, this, this was this was, this was was extraordinarily disappointing. If you were hoping for a cathartic moment of acknowledgement that the election was legit or that women should not be sexually abused or that the violence at the Capitol was, you know, regrettable. You never got your catharsis. 
Well, nope. you, you you say the one thing that he did was remind us of the stakes. What are they? At this stage, the stakes really, truly are uh, whether we will have a democratic system of governance in this country and whether we will have constitutional rights and rule of law that oversees that, that set of rights. Uh, you know, truth and, and all of that is, is another casualty, but even down to the policy realm, a repetition of uh, div family division, defense of that, uh, lying about the economic uh, 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 impacts of his policies. I mean, just you know, the, the concept of guns and, and absolutely, you know, talking about hardening schools by giving teachers guns and just more guns to more guns. I mean, the list goes on and on of all of these social decays that we have. But at the core of it, he said, again, the same thing he said in 2020, which is he'll respect the results of the election if he wins. Yeah, well, I asked him that question. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> that when He's I said win, lose, or draw, will you accept the peaceful transfer of power? Well, if you quit counting the votes, there won't be. That was his answer then. Now he says, if it's an honest election, in other words, if he wins, he'll respect it. If he doesn't win, he won't. And 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 this time, you know, he'll he'll know what to do to us that he didn't quite know. And his team on the outside, there are think tanks working for him behind the scenes that have thick books of how to take over uh, the, the government in a way and, and that they were not quite up to speed on. You know, when his transition ended in 2016, he moved into the White House. Chris Christie, who right now is trying to act like an innocent, Chris Christie uh, uh, created the whole transition plan books. Of course, he legitimated him uh, early on in the primaries. But all of the transition planning that Chris Christie recommended were thrown out and um thankfully right because right. the professional recommendations didn't occur well trump's now got professional people on the outside they have an america first institute they, they're doing they're doing planning uh on how to effectively take over the government and execute programs and probably sideline democrats in congress and just do a whole bunch of things by the way one more scary thing i'll just say this he basically called for a default Yes. No, he did. He said he wanted a default. It, it's inevitable, which it's not. We've never defaulted in 230, 40 years, whatever. Why is it inevitable? It's not. But he he kind of what he did is he introduced the idea that it's somehow like it's OK to default. And, it, it, and you know, oh, and I'll fix I'll, I'll stop the war between Russia and Ukraine in a day. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. There was one great moment, though, Caitlin Collins had on him that I thought was very effective on the border wall where he kept on insisting he built the wall and she's like 52 miles and and she stuck to that and he got frustrated visibly and then i think he yeah. called her now well i did that on chris cuomo show tonight one of the mega morons were saying 400 miles and i said listen i've traveled those miles they don't exist there's and only 40 or 50 miles of it. Well, I heard from the Border Patrol, and I'll believe them. Well, what the fuck do you want from me? You want to believe? I said he's a liar. I no, was there. The Border <laughs> Patrol documents say 52 miles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, man, this is uh, this is existential again for for the future of our country, and and our voters responded in 2022, and in 2020. Yeah. You know, we didn't support as voters we. 
the collective didn't support candidates that he endorsed for secretary of state who would have stolen the election in multiple swing states. Uh, and and uh, that's the kind of effort we're going to have to do again. Yeah, I would say, you know, you know, never forget Donald Trump tonight called for the greatest government on earth to default on its debt. That's not the American way. That is that is the Donald Trump way. And by the way, it means don't pay the bills that I racked up when I was president, because people should remember seven point one trillion dollars of increased debt on his watch. Yeah. And pay that debt back. Yeah. But then again, Donald Trump is a deadbeat kind of a, a, a businessman anyways, that never pays his bills. So I guess to him, this is no big deal. This is normal. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, listen, I want to uh, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up with a few things. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at Substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With us, as always, Joel, it's a lot of fun talking to you, man. Joel Rubin is with us, former Obama um, member of the Obama administration, and of course ran for Congress against Jamie Raskin. Yes. Uh, one of the, the nine candidates. And the one that kills me still I'm just going to say this, David Trone running for senator now, who uh, lost to uh, lost to Jamie and then ran, reinvented himself as a poor farmer and ran from rural. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, if you're out in L.A., his liquor barns are out here or the liquor warehouse or whatever, wine and more. And there's a big picture of him and his brother living in the lap of luxury. So out in L.A., He's a wine connoisseur kind of guy. But when he ran, we got to see about his farm and how he grew up. To me, he's no better than Donald Trump. But that's just (laughs) me. (laughs) That's not just you. (laughs) It it is just me? (laughs) No, it's not just me. You know what I remember most? And when we were in that one debate and he pointed at his watch, like he had to get out of there. And I called him on it and he got pissed off. I was like, hey, you can go ahead and leave if you want. We're still here. I didn't give it. And uh, um, the the Washington Post reporter put it in his piece, and Trone got hot. And he blamed me for him losing the race. I'm going, you lost the race because you're a turd. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Look, you know, that race, one of the things about the race that was was really exciting. And I think for anyone who chooses to run for office, you might experience the same thing, is that when you're a candidate, there's like a bit of a bond that occurs with the other candidates, even if you're, you know, you're competing. And, and in our race, it was right. a, a, a Democratic primary that was the decision primary, basically, that the general election is so gerrymandered in this district that <laughs> no Republican has a chance, right? 
And so you have to. Well, there the just aren't any Republicans registered. <laughs> and there's like twelve, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, and, but so we had like in my time eighteen debates, and so I ended up bonding with the other candidates. And Jamie, Jamie's a, a good friend now, and I really value his uh, leadership as as all Americans should. I mean, it's really something to behold. I spoke with him the other day. He's doing great now. His cancer's over. Yeah. Um, you know that race and running for office in that period. Uh, was sort of like an appetizer to to politics for me uh and, but you know it was 2016 and it was right. in this moment where we were on the precipice and you could see things forming and we're like watching this hate towards muslims and this hate towards immigrants that was coming out in the republican primaries and here we are in a democratic primary we're talking about like fighting climate change about restoring America, about America's role in the world, being diplomatic, about an economy that works for everyone, like totally different universes. And then Trump won. And so for four plus years, it was crazy uh, resistance time. And now in Maryland, we now have new elections. Then we're going to have, you know, like David Trone is leaving the Congress and he's running for Senate. Oh, he's still in Congress. Jamie Raskin it may run. Uh, unknown yet, but you for, know, for I, Senate, for Senate, and and there are against a couple of, Trone, against Trone. So we, <laughs> we, we may have a rematch. <clears throat> a couple other good people in there too. You're well, loving. I would love to see that because I would love to see David Trone get his ass beat again by da Jamie Raskin. Well, you know, it, it was Kathleen, um, Kathleen uh, Matthews, Kathleen Matthews, and David Trone split the vote. He came in; she probably would have won. She had, I mean, I, I I know you ran, but I mean, looking at the polls early, <laughs> looking at the polls early, she had a lead in the polling and in um, money. But yeah, Rask yeah, yeah. yeah, but Raskin always had that same very strong he, he, uh, core of supporters. And it never really gained a lot, never really lost a lot. But Trone came in and divided up. The, it took a lot of Kathleen's votes. Yeah, and Jamie got like thirty-four percent of the vote in that primary, but it's a yeah. plurality, so he was able to to win with that base. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and um, well, I think Kathleen, you know, very formidable. Uh, we were running a very heavy race already uh, with those two in the lead, and then a bunch of other really high-quality people running state elected types. And then no, Trump, it was a good. It was a good group of people until trone came in then he came in at the end of january and he spent like 13 million dollars um yeah. of his own money to uh, lose <laughs> that's a I mean, lot of beer money man <laughs> i mean i could have you should have just gone out and bought a couple of cases for everybody and gotten it over with i mean you know, he spent 15 million the next time to win in the next district over so yes he it, the thing that um i i look back on it now and I think any one in, well, I think there were a good six or seven strong candidates out of you being one of them out of that, in that race. I just said horrible on the vote count though. But yeah. But, but I thought that after, and I'm just saying this as, as the reporter, as the guy who, um, who, you know, looked up, who moderated the debates. When I think, when I go back over it, there were, you know, and I, I still have the videotapes of those somewhere. I looked at them a couple of years ago that when I look at it, there were some solid answers 
and there were some solid performances. But I look at it now through the lens of Jamie's role in the in January six, and I no slight to anyone, but I'm very thankful that Jamie won for that reason, because his constitutional knowledge, his scholarship, was key, and he even has the respect of Republicans. He co-sponsored a bill with of all people Jim Jordan who calls him the professor so I I was I was but when you look back on it then we had no clue when we were going through that at that time like you said we saw the beginnings of some of the problems but the divisiveness was not and I like I said I moderated debates on both sides and it wasn't nearly as divisive as it is now but but I'll tell you you know I'm not at all surprised about Jamie and Liz Cheney. Um, Liz Cheney, I have an award signed by her. She was my boss's boss up there when I was at the State Department. She was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in Near Eastern Affairs. And I worked there early in my career in Near Eastern Affairs, it's Middle East work. And she led, she created the an initiative in our Middle East Bureau focused on promoting democracy in the Arab world, not through invasion, but actually through grassroots democratic education and initiatives on economic development. And I worked in in that field, in that space that she had created at state. So when things started going the direction they were in the last couple of years, seeing Liz speak there, I was like, oh yeah, that's like what she was like at the state department. Right. Democracy and seeing Jamie like he was, it's like, oh yeah, I'm on these debates with him. And what's the guy talking about? He's talking about democracy and the constitution and the rule of law. Like that's his thing. So it's a really wild thing on a personal level to have been exposed to these people and they're genuine. And like yes. Jamie, Jamie's arguments were not opportunistic. You can find the opportunists. You know who they are. You're like, oh, <laughs> how did you now? I, I don't want to say who, but <laughs> 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 Okay. But it's like, George Santos. <clears throat> I mean, well, woo wee. Is that another really, criminal bites the dust? Is that really his name? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. But, but these guys, there's a reason why Jamie climbed the mountain. You know, I've seen him at events with Speaker Pelosi and others or Leader Pelosi. They all look to him as the intellectual leader, but he also had that ability to get people excited about yeah. And that yeah. is what's so important right now. And that's where Biden is in his argument. And that, I truly hate to say it, like we have to go to round three or round four, whatever the hell this is. But we are in a moment of fighting for our democracy through the electoral process. And Donald Trump showed us tonight that we have to do it again. Yes, uh, again and again. And, and let, I want to end what you, you brought up excitement. Uh, j- uh, so when you want to get away from this, when you've got to go, all right, I've had enough of this sh- yeah, I got to clear my head. What would you rather do? Read a book, listen to music, go to comedy, watch a movie? What's your what's your method of unwinding? Well, you know, uh, in my head, I'm still a Peace Corps volunteer because I was in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. 
So I want. So you're heading out. to Costa Rica and building schools. <laughs> I'm going surfing, man. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Is there a lot of that in Costa Rica? <laughs> uh, you think? <laughs> There's a whole coast of it. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm going to the village. I'm hanging out with my friends in the village, play a little soccer, and then I'm going to go to the beach and go surfing. That's what I. Nice. Doing. I'd have to listen to music and uh, maybe go to a comedy show. And, and I don't mind getting the hell out of D.C. whenever possible, just to clear my head. I, I really could use that in spades. But um, but D.C., uh, despite the strain and all that it is, it, it is always a uh, uh, renewing, renewable or uh, uh, recharging city. There's always new people coming in, new ideas. And um wait was, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i have to stop you right there new ideas i haven't seen any no <laughs> okay new ideas to die new people I yeah don't know. New, new people i'll get but i hear the same old you know you know what we really should do brian is we should really have a trickle down economics that's a new idea no we've been doing it for 40 years you know we should ban women from abortion. That's a new idea. No, that's been going on since before 1970. Now, everything is, that's old is new again. And it's like we forget our past. Well, we don't have any clue as to what we've already gone through. That's why they need old guys like us around. Because yeah. we actually know, hey, we did that in 1997. And they're like, what? And it, yeah, well... I actually got in a disagreement with someone the other day. I said, you know, look, we've tried this before back during the Ronald Reagan administration. They go, Oh, what do you know about Ronald Reagan? I go, well, I was, I covered that administration. Covered it. It was the first administration I covered 1985. And you know, we've done, we've been down this road before. Oh, we have not. I go, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I'm actually a firsthand fucking knowledge. <laughs> And people act like if it happened, I mean, there are people in government, people in that White House weren't, of course, weren't even alive when no. Ronald Reagan was president. And it, to them, it's ancient history. To me, it's like if I blink, I missed it. You know, I just happened. <laughs> I was there. I remember it dramatically remember it. And I, I so I D.C. is a lot of things and I have fun there. But at the end of the day, if I want new ideas, I got to get out of there. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> got to go surfing. Reach yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So as we wrap up, the other thing, I got to ask this because I've asked this of many, many guests. John Paul, Georgia Ringo, which one is your favorite? Ringo. Ah, the drummer. I, the drama. Longevity, self-deprecating humor. Yep. He, he, and, and, uh, he made the band. You know, David Grohl says that too, that, you know, he was the perfect drummer because he drummed appropriately for the songs and none of it was about him. It was about the best part, the best thing to do for the song. So, yeah, I, I always thought he was an underappreciated drummer. And I, I, as a guy who's been in bands, I wish I had a Ringo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I always end up with an animal who <laughs> beat the hell and go, hey, it's a ballad, pal. <laughs> Let's keep, this. <laughs> Let's keep uh, it down under a thousand decibels just for this one song. <laughs> he's subtle. You didn't know he's there, but that song sounded so good. Because of him. Yeah. I, yeah, well, I, I it's hard for me to pick. So, do you have a favorite Beatles song? 
by the way, my wife is printing here. <laughs> um, do I have a favorite Beatles song? Um, well, actually, this is a, a George song, but Helter Skelter. I love oh, that's it. a uh, that's a uh, Paul and, and John. Gla and, Gla oh, and Glass Onion. I also uh, love. Here's another clue for you all: The Walrus was Paul. My favorite I mean, love song by the Beatles would have to be Something, and I love uh, by by George, and I also love Here Come the Sun. But Dear Prudence by John is great. And as far as rockers go, Helter Skelter is, um, I mean, that that was early heavy metal. So that, that I'll, I'll, the later stuff I love. And, and then my, my favorite band. my favorite underplayed song from the Beatles would have to be Hey Bulldog, which got covered a lot by people later, but oh. not much by them. But all right, so Stones or Beatles? Beatles. There you so, go. All right. Good man. Good man. <laughs> the Stones had like four or five amazing songs. And like, that was it. I, I'm not going to put down the Stones. They're an amazing parent. Yeah, well, I do. My band does a lot of Stones. Let me tell you, the Stones are a great pub band. They And it's very easy to cover the Stones. And you can put your own twist on a Stone song and people don't get upset. But if you stand, if you get up on stage and do a Beatles song, you better fucking do it. Yeah, or you're going to piss some people off. <laughs> <laughs> it's and worse also, than losing an audience. If you're a, a comedian and make an off color joke, you do a bad also, Beatles song. You'll never get them back. The Beatles, the way they look, they looked like the era, right? Yeah. The they were that, the era. They defined the era. They really defined it. Like the stones, they, 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 they look fine though. But they didn't, their look didn't create the look. The right. Beatles, look, the hair, the eye, the, the glasses, the, the the clothing, the whole thing, man. They were. Yeah, the attitude. <laughs> How'd you find America? Turned left at Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call that haircut? Off a, you know, just, just cheeky and, and not giving a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just we need like, that today. There'll never be another Beatles, but man, we need to laugh at ourselves just a little bit more. So true. Well, so Joe, true. Li listen, I do appreciate you. Be this this is always fun. We got to have you back sooner. But um, I if when uh, I'd like you to wrap up with one serious thought. What do you think is the step forward in dealing with Iran and nuclear and the potential for nuclear war? I think right now the step forward is that we have got to find uh, a way to speak directly to Iran uh, and and have a direct direct engagement with them over the stakes of of what needs to be traded for a nuclear agreement. Uh, we haven't had direct talks with them. They haven't wanted to talk to us. There've been a lot of da dancing around, but that has to be it. We have to go the next step forward, not through intermediaries. Um, not through threats that ain't going to work, but call for direct engagement and find a way to break through that wall. And there's going to be a lot of political pressure against it. But what's the alternative? Yeah. What's the alternative? <laughs> yeah. Nuclear war. That's <laughs> I mean, anyway. Well, listen, Joel, thanks for joining us. I, I hope somebody takes these words to heart and <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, my brother. Take care. This is oh, and go ahead and plug where we can find you, where we can see you. I can be found on Twitter at, at Joel Martin Rubin. Uh, that's uh, my my full name. And please follow me there. And I'm also a, a contributor on Center Clip Audio. So you can check me out there as well. And um, I'm uh, always available to... <laughs>
see bouncing around sometimes on the screens, but Joel Martin Rubin for Twitter. That's the best way. And the name of this show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you again next time.